You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Fam, you know that good old Dr. Seuss line, how did it get so late so soon? That's how this whole year has felt. Like, how on earth are we more than halfway through 2022 already? How is it already July? And how has so much happened in the past few months? Deep, deep sigh. But it is the summer, and even though the world feels like it's going to pieces around us sometimes, this is supposed to be a time when many of us have a chance to relax, maybe take a few vacation days, get out in nature, maybe even go on a road trip. So today on the show, we want to share with you some of the podcasts that members of the Code Switch team have been listening to in our moments of vegging out. Consider it a podcast playlist for the dog days of summer. The shows we've selected help take us to a different world, introduce us to new concepts, get out of our heads a little. They do not involve breaking news. But, no surprise, all of them wound up having a whole lot to do with race, identity, and culture. I guess even in our free time, we kind of have a thing. In a few minutes, we'll be talking about food. There is this citrus blight that is going around the world. Oprah! Part of the reason that it does so well is that she captures elements of the culture. The criminal justice system. I'm at a point in life where I don't feel human. And all the miraculous weirdness of the human body. At no point anybody told me it's okay to be fat. But first, we're getting into a topic that I am very excited about for personal reasons. Old people. And to do that, we're bringing on Taylor Jennings Brown. Taylor's a Croc Fellow at NPR, and she's been working with the Code Switch team for the past few months. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, Karen. Tell us about your pick. So one of my favorite podcasts for the past year is called 70 Over 70. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. Be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. Now, I'm not usually into the whole let's sit down and chit-chat type of podcast, but this one hits different. It's made by Pineapple Street Studios, and it's actually hosted by their co-founder, Max Linsky. Throughout the show, Max talks to 70 people over the age of 70 about the big life questions a lot of us have. So think, what's my purpose? Am I making the most of my life? And what's the key to success? So Taylor, what hooked you? What did you love about this podcast that drew you into it? Well, when I first listened to the show, I had no idea what it was. I just saw it on my phone. And I remember hearing some random white guy, Max, talking about talking to old people. And then he started having a conversation with his 80-year-old dad, who had just gotten a heart procedure and was still in the hospital bed while they were talking. Can I ask you a question that might drive you a little crazy? You really didn't want to get older for a long time. That was, that was my experience of you as your kid, was just like, you wanted to keep being an old man at bay for as long as possible. I think partially I was scared of it because what I'd seen with my father and falling apart. And, but wh- why do I do an hour's worth of exercises and 20,000 steps a day? I mean, part of it is to hold off getting old, I think. And at some point, you're not going to be able to do that many steps. And at some point, you're not going to be able to do all those exercises. Do you, do you think about that? or? Well, it, I think about it when I'm doing push-ups. You know, 
I'm now up to 94 push-ups a day. And every time I get down on the floor to do the push-ups, I, I think, is this going to be the day that I'm not going to make it, that I'm not going to be able to do the 94, you know? And there'll be at some point, I think about it all the time, there'll be some point where it'll be done, you know? Oh my God, Popolinsky, 20,000 steps. I feel like such a slacker. And it's interesting, Taylor, because it sounds like he's not really fearing getting old. He's fearing not being able to do then what he can do now. It sounds like he was thinking that if he stays in shape, he staves off being infirm, which will make him feel old. Being infirm, I mean. So what was it about that conversation that interested you specifically? It was just so honest and vulnerable. I mean, like you heard, Karen, his dad was keeping it completely real about how he felt about being 80 and what life had left to offer him. But throughout the series, it was also cool to hear Max have these moments of revelation about himself and his own fears about life and death. And it's not just this conversation with his dad that's like this. All the conversations are. Each person reflects on the lessons that they've learned, their perspective as they age, and just how they view the rest of their life. Which, I mean, is super dope for me because, you know, these people have actually lived lives, full lives, and experienced a lot of the stuff I'm currently fumbling my way through as a Mm 22-year-old. It just kind of helps give perspective to this whole life thing from the end of the journey. But the coolest part is that the people he talks to are crazy accomplished. Like, he's got an episode with Dionne Warwick. I am Dionne from beginning to end. I will always be who I am. I, I like me, you know? So there's no reason for me to be anything other than who and what I am. There's one with the longtime South Carolina congressperson, Jim Clyburn, where he talks about some advice his wife gave him. She had a little sticker on the mirror in my bathroom. And the sticker read, when you win, brag gently. When you lose, weep softly. And there's even an episode with the poet Nikki Giovanni, and she talks about dropping out of school despite immense pressure to not do it. You're either going to have the life you want or you're going to let other people control you. It was time for me to be in control of my life. So that was just too easy. <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> Taylor, what's one of your favorite episodes? Hmm. My favorite episode is with Sister Helen Prejean. She's a huge advocate for abolishing the death penalty and she's a spiritual advisor for people on death row. So she's literally with them as they're breathing their last breaths. Here's some insight she had as she's reflecting on a conversation she had with one of the people she advised, Brandon Bernard. That kind of death is very surreal because it's not like he's in a hospital fading. Hmm. His life energy is ebbing away. He's fully alive. His consciousness is fully alive. His imagination's fully alive. And he, I could tell, all of his energy was going into relating to people. He was being grateful for what everybody had done. Had a good sense of humor. Hmm. Uh, He was able to be present. And maybe that's the gift. Maybe if we can be alive, fully alive, in the present moment, that when it comes to death, We'll be able to do that, too. I'll be able to do that, too. He certainly did. Karen, I found this show in the spring of 2021. I was a senior in college, 
racing towards the abyss of adulthood during a global pandemic. And something about hearing people four times my age talking so calmly about some of the most stressful moments of their lives was reassuring. It gave me a sense of gravity in a world that felt like it was constantly spinning. Honestly, it still feels like it's spinning sometimes. That's probably why I still have this show on repeat today. And now, thanks to you, I'm off to download it. (laughs) The show is 70 Over 70, produced by Pineapple Street Studios. The host is Max Linsky, and it was brought to us by Taylor Jennings Brown. Thanks so much, Taylor. Of course. Up next, we have my boss, Code Switch editor Leah (laughs) Danella. Hi, Leah. Hi, Karen. So, Leah, you have a podcast for us. What is it? Okay, well, before I say the name of the show, I have to start with a confession, which is I basically do not listen to podcasts in my spare time. (laughs) Understandable. I'm just so sick of hearing them by the end of the day that I would literally rather sit in silence staring at a wall than hear someone explaining, like, how Austria got involved in the Indo-Prussian War or whatever else podcasts talk about. (laughs) That sounds like a familiar network. (laughs) (laughs) But there is one show... That is basically catnip to me, and that is The Splendid Table. Splendid Table, table, a show for curious cooks and eaters. (gasps) The Splendid Table. I know this podcast, Leah. It's a food show from American Public Media that's been around for like a million years, give or Mm -hmm. take a couple of years. (laughs) It was first hosted by the great Lynn Rosetta Casper, and more recently it's been taken over by the chef and cookbook editor, Francis Lamb, who is doing a fabulous job. He really is. I loved the show when Lynn was doing it, and I was a little nervous when it changed hands, but I love Francis too. The way he talks about food is so soothing to me. Like, no matter what kind of recipe or ingredient someone's describing on the show, Francis's response is some version of, wow, that sounds amazing. I love it. That sounds super awesome. Yeah. That sounds great. Oh, that sounds super so delicious. Yeah, I've never heard him go, ick, I just threw up in my mouth a little. <laughs> So Leah, back up, because I know a big part of the show is sharing recipes and cooking techniques, but that's not all it is. True. The show will go really deep on just about any aspect of food culture. So the guests range from chefs, of course, but also historians, scientists, cultural critics. And because it's been around for so long, since 1997 to be exact, uh, they're able to get really, really specific with subject matter. So they had a whole episode on rare mushroom foraging. You're walking in the woods and you see nothing and nothing and nothing and you're looking and nothing's happening. And then, for whatever reason, your eye falls on a mushroom, the pattern recognition sets into your brain, and it's like the forest has lifted her skirts and showed you um, (laughs) this, this hidden or unseen world. One on different pasta shapes. Every pasta shape is righteous and beautiful and deserves its place on this good earth, except for bucatini, which is a sick joke. And a recent one I really liked got into the shrinking biodiversity of food. They told a story about how a lot of wild citrus actually used to be super sour and bitter. And then ingenious fruit breeders took took them and then you know made them bigger, in some cases made them seedless, but in most, pretty much all cases, made them sweeter and sweeter. And as the mm-hmm. bitterness disappears, the fruit becomes fragile to pests and diseases. Actually, I had a chance to visit um, the University of Florida a few years ago. And, you know, I was, I was talking to people who study citrus there. Uh, and this is reflected in your book as well. 
there is essentially this citrus blight that is going mm. around the world that has wiped out billions and billions of dollars worth of Florida citrus and may in fact has the potential to actually wipe out oranges as we know them. What? No more OJ? Exactly. But that food journalist that you just heard, Dan Salandino, says that he studies this lack of biodiversity not just to visit cool places and taste new flavors, which does seem awesome, but because the future of global food production may depend on it. These endangered foods are inheritance after thousands and thousands of years of farming has a value beyond just thinking about these wonderful cultures. Aren't they quaint? They're a thing of the past. I wanted to make sure that I was explaining that these were resources for our future as well. They also have a ton of episodes that are right in that code switch sweet spot, the intersection of food and identity. Mm -hmm. They've talked about what and who make American Chinese food. They talked to Sean Sherman, who's also known as the sous chef, that's S-I-O-U-X, about indigenous kitchens. They did a deep dive into the famous chef and activist Edna Lewis. And they talked about the changing landscape of Southern food and all the different groups that make Southern food nowadays. This sounds so interesting, but Leah, I'm still curious. What makes this podcast different to you from other podcasts? I mean, why are you able to listen to it, even though your ears automatically close up at the thought of listening to other ones after you finish your work day? Okay, fair question. Um, so as you know, I work from home most days. And one of the things I do at the end of the day to transition from uh, work, Leah, to regular Leah is I cook. Mm. And I cook in a really leisurely way, slowly chopping vegetables, maybe simmering a soup broth, roasting more vegetables. Basically, all I eat is vegetables. <laughs> anyway, this show is a really nice companion to that because at its heart, it's really just about how amazing food is and what a joy and privilege it is to have some time to cook and eat a nice meal. But Leah... Talk about the tone of the show a little bit. I mean, I could imagine something like this could seem really pretentious or out of touch. Dare I say, very NPR, very delicious dish, if you remember <laughs> that satire on Saturday Night Live. Mm. I mean, you did mention that episode about rare mushroom for Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, all of that is true. But uh, the host, uh, Francis, does... I think a really good job of keeping things tied to the concerns and lives of quote unquote normal, real people. So even on that mushroom episode, he focused a lot on the immigrant communities in the Pacific Northwest that have been able to make a living basically searching for these really coveted mushrooms. And in every episode, he talks about things that might be on real people's minds at any given moment. So how the food that we buy affects the climate, for instance, mm -hmm. or on a much more micro level, how to approach communal meals when someone has a really specific kind of dietary restriction. And when the pandemic first started, he talked about the exhaustion and frustration of trying to safely grocery shop and cook day in and day out for his family, including his daughter, who I think was just a toddler at the time. And Francis is a very accomplished chef, but he was basically like, I am so sick of everything that I make. It's in part why I love to go out to eat, because it doesn't feel like food I cooked. <laughs> I tell you something, I, I open my cupboard and I also get that kind of blank moment in my head where I go like, what am I going to cook? Am I, I'm not going to do that thing again. And it's funny, right. like I've published 
you know, thousands of recipes over the years. And I still get this blankness and I get the cauliflower. I'm going to go, oh, do you make these fritters again? Ah, been there. I feel this pain. Cooking for anybody day in and day out for a couple of years is crazy making. Right. You know, he said one thing that was helping him get through that was that he had started cooking from recipes, like just following them to a T. So before the pandemic started, he'd almost always just cooked by instinct and training and memory. But when he was in the height of his isolation and he wasn't eating out and couldn't really see anyone else, he started actually opening up cookbooks and doing exactly what another person said to do. And he said that that was such a gift because it almost felt like a friend was cooking dinner for him suddenly. He was getting to taste something that he hadn't had to think of himself. I love that. I did too. And I actually wound up trying to do it. I started using Claudia Rodin's giant cookbook, The Book of Jewish Food, and I learned a bunch of recipes that my mom Mm -hmm. made when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So in that time when I hadn't gotten to see my mom in person for months, it really did feel a little bit like she was cooking for me. Because as we've often noted on Code Switch, cooking is as much about feeling as it is about eating. So what was the best thing you made? It was this dish called mujadara, or some people call it megadara or mordardara. Uh, if Gene were here, he would be totally grossed out by this description. But Why does it have mayonnaise in it? It does not have mayonnaise, but <laughs> it has a lot of onions. It's so simple. It's basically uh. just rice and brown lentils, mm-hmm. but you slow cook onions to go on it. So you're just simmering these onions in olive oil for like an hour and they Ooh. become deep brown and caramelized. And it's, to me, the perfect meal. Well, don't invite Gene to dinner, but I don't live too far from you. Hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Once again, that was Code Switch editor Leah Danella. Her recommendation is The Splendid Table from American Public Media. Thanks, Leah. Thank you, Karen. All righty. Coming soon, we're going to have even more recommendations for podcasts we think you'll love, and things are going to get a little juicy. It wasn't just that hair was linked to ideas about beauty or ugliness, but also around racial hierarchy. That's after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. There are many ways for members of the LGBTQ community to build a family. Sometimes it's an adoption story, a surrogate story, or something completely different. But no matter how that story unfolds, Mass Mutual is here to help you achieve your family dreams. Contact a financial professional and start planning for your family your way today. Mass Mutual. Karen, just Karen, code switch. And we're back with even more podcast suggestions. Up first, we're going to hear from producer Deba Motishan. Hi, Deba. Hi, Karen. So what is this podcast you've been listening to, and why do you love it? So it's called Embodied, and it's from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. It's hosted by Anita Rao. There is stuff we are never supposed to talk about. There are some women who never experience orgasm and can experience massive sexual pleasure. There are some days when orgasm is just too much work. Conversations that make us feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. I'm pregnant and I'm 41 and I'm also like going through some other things. Is this what I should expect? Burning questions for others. And what I love about this podcast is that it approaches sex, relationships, personal health, people's bodies in such a fresh and interesting way. These are topics every single person can relate to, but 
you know, for a lot of people, it can be uncomfortable. <laughs> Including people in and listening to public radio, which is notoriously squeamish about stuff like this. Yes, very. I hear they get a lot of emails. I'll bet. This podcast breaks some of those barriers and brings in some surprising and not-so-talked-about angles through conversations, for example, on navigating dating as a disabled person. One guest actually talked about having spastic cerebral palsy and the assumptions that it raises. There's many people that do not have visible disabilities or any disability at all that do struggle with fertility. And no one ever assumes that, like they automatically assume it with me when that is actually not a struggle I have at all. Another guest talked about body neutrality, something they embraced as part of a larger movement of fat liberation. And it really blew my mind. I had been a feminist. I had been anti-racist. I'd been an activist since I was 18 years old. And yet, you know, at no point anybody told me it's okay to be fat. But Karen, I want to talk to you about one of my personal favorite episodes on body hair. Probably not just me. Um, I'm sure it's something many others have invested a lot of energy in. Yes, indeed. We have been there doing that. Ouch. From electrolysis and lasering to shaving, waxing, and threading, a lot of people, and not just women at this point, spend a bunch of time and money on defuzzing themselves, ourselves. Yup. In the episode, Anita talks with guest Sharon Daliwal about their complicated relationship with body hair growing up. Both of them are South Asian and both had a very hard time accepting their body hair when they were younger. I think it really does affect women of color a lot more than white women Mm. because it is so racialized. And so I think that's why the conversation hasn't progressed that far. And when you do see, I guess, um, representation of body hair in the media, it tends to be white women and it tends to be uh, like small blonde wisps of hair kind of, you know, represented. But the beauty standard of having little to no body hair is really specific to a certain place in time. I actually learned from my own research that in 19th century Persia, a thin mustache and unibrow were actually considered the standard of female beauty. Which goes to show how ideas around what's considered normal or not can often reveal something deeper about society and our cultural values. Something we talk about a lot here on Code Switch. Yeah, and Embodied got into that as well. How in the U.S., body hair has often been about more than just body hair. It wasn't just that hair was linked to ideas about beauty or ugliness, but also around cleanliness and dirt and around uh, racial hierarchy and racial supremacy. That's Rebecca Herzig. She was a guest on the episode, and she's a professor of gender and sexuality studies at Bates College. Even in the beginning, naturalists and natural philosophers were obsessed with differences between people based on body hair. I mean, any of the early naturalists you could think of, Linnaeus, Buffon, um, even Thomas Jefferson, who liked to do his own ethnological observations, they all wrote about body hair and racial differences, racial variations in body hair. Um, but as science moved into kind of greater and greater authority and clout, certainly body hair moved right along with it. And there became whole fields, um, dermatology being one that specialized in standardizing what normal or excessive amounts of hair were and what uh, appropriate treatments for so-called excessive hair should be. So much to come through. Wink, wink. Nice. (laughs) 
at a moment when I'm thinking a lot about what it means to inhabit my body, how politicized people's bodies are, I'm just really appreciating that this podcast examines some of those things we take for granted and the incredible things about our bodies, too. So that was Embodied from North Carolina Public Radio, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it, too. Thank you, Deba. Thanks, Karen. Up next, we're joined by Code Switch producer Alyssa Zhang Perry. Alyssa, welcome back to the show. What's the podcast you're recommending to us today? So I'm bringing y'all a podcast by Futuro Media called Suave. It just won a Pulitzer Prize in the audio reporting category this year, so I was immediately intrigued when I heard the name. And I basically binged all seven episodes in three days. Ooh, I love a good binge. I also heard about the Pulitzer win, but I don't know much about the show, so fill me in. The podcast follows the journey of one man named David Luiz Gonzalez, who is also known as Suave, you know, the name of the podcast. And he was serving a life sentence for a murder he was convicted of in 1988 when he was only 17. His journey of getting out of prison after about three decades is broken down over the course of those seven episodes. These episodes, Karen, are extremely scene-heavy and sound-rich, starting with the very first episode where we hear a conversation between the journalist Maria Hinojosa and Suave while he's sitting in a makeshift recording booth for the first time, which, you know, can be small, dark, and very enclosed. Suave, I'm talking to you. What is going on? I'm cool. I'm serious. I'm cool. I'm just... Yeah, but just tell me what just happened. <laughs> I never thought I'd be locked up in a room like this again. <laughs> I'm cool. I know you're cool, sweetie. You're out of prison. I just had a little flashback. Okay. It's just like, it's too real. The snippet of tape is just one of the reasons why I got hooked on this podcast. That scene made me cry. Anyway, the rest of the episodes unfold nonlinear. We hear about how the journalist retraced the murder charges and the processes that led him to being convicted. Also, we hear what life in prison was like for Suave and how he began his transition to the outside world. As a listener, you really experience how Suave is feeling through each new life step, like his excitement and nerves to date for the very first time. You know what they do? Do I take a bouquet of flowers? Do I take one rose? You know, what kind of cologne I gotta wear? All that stuff. I think about all that. Mm. And we also hear the pitfalls, like when he revisits the scene of the murder and how he struggles with his mental health. Because you get to that point, it feels like you're losing your mind. You know, you start getting suicidal thoughts. AJP, I'm hearing in these clips that Maria is really close with Suave. She's almost maternal with him. Mm -hmm, Totally. The podcast gets into the unique and complex relationship between the subject and the journalist. So Maria met Suave in 1993 when she was a speaker at his prison. Over the decades, he became a source, you know, someone who was on the inside as she reported on the criminal justice system. From that blossomed a working relationship and even a friendship. Although that friendship was complicated because Maria was one of his few connections to the outside world, whereas she was a busy person with a full life and a family. There's one point in one of the episodes when Suave is about to go before a judge to have his case reviewed to try to get released from prison. He needs a character witness and asks Maria to speak on his behalf. And 
you can really hear her struggle with that decision. You know, it's complicated because, you know, I have to acknowledge I'm reporting on Suave, right? I'm, I'm reporting on him at this point. I'm recording our phone calls. I can't get involved with the source like that. So that's like an issue. And also, you know, I don't really know him outside of prison. So what if something does happen when he gets out and I'm on the record? For me, that moment was super fascinating because I've reported a lot of narrative stories and the sources in those stories go really deep with you and they give a lot of themselves to you and you end up having a close relationship. But usually you just move on quickly to the next story. But this story forced me to think more about what it feels like to be on the other side of the mic, telling your story and entrusting that to one person. It made me think more about the position and responsibility we have as journalists to do justice to someone's experience, especially if it's able to help fix a bigger societal problem. As we know, the criminal justice system has changed so much since the 80s. Alyssa, how were you able to understand the complexity of the laws and how they affected Suave? Well... You all know I love sticky, complicated policies. And to me, good reporting and storytelling can show those big holes in our systems and how people fall through them. So to me, that's what Suave does. It uses his story to illustrate what happens to young men of color who enter prison as teenagers. During the middle of the series, Suave is able to get out of prison because of a 2016 Supreme Court decision that allowed juvenile sentences to be reviewed. When he was released a year later, part of his deal was that he has a felony and will be on parole for life. Right now, I'm at a point in life where I don't feel human. I don't feel like normal, you know, like it's always like, like I got to walk a straight line every day, every day. It's almost like I'm still in jail. I got to ask parole for everything. Can I go such and such? Can I do that? Maybe, maybe it's just me that I want too much. You know, is it wrong for me to want normal things? I don't know. Karen, I got chills when he asked, is it wrong for me to want normal things? Hmm. I can hear how much the trauma of being locked up and going through a system that tells you that you aren't worth anything can really impact a person forever. The podcast is Suave by Futuro Media. It was the choice of our producer, Alyssa Jean Perry. Thanks, Alyssa. You're welcome. Thanks, Karen. Okay, it's the moment I know a lot of you have all been waiting for. My pick. Let me wind up to it a little. Even if you don't watch television much, if you've never read a book or thought about counting calories, even if none of that stuff is remotely applicable to you, you probably know who Oprah Winfrey is. That's because Oprah, she was one name before Beyonce was, is not just a television personality, an actress, a sometimes diet diva, she is a cultural institution. She just about single-handedly boosted the publishing industry at a time when its future looked seriously doubtful and highlighted the importance of book clubs and the joy of communal reading. She's a philanthropist with a special interest in funding learning opportunities for young people who might not otherwise get them. She wants you to, in her words, live your best life. She was, in short, the most successful talk show host in the history of television. And she's still one of the best interviewers around. 
You'll remember Oprah as the person who sat down with Harry and Meghan last year for that interview. Were you silent or were you silenced? Now, I listen to several news podcasts daily from NPR, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and a few other places. And given what's been in the news for the past couple of years, it's been hella depressing. I needed some food for thought that would balance out my audio equivalent of doom scrolling. And I found it in Oprah Demick's The Study of the Queen of Talk. She's not just an icon. She's a cultural syllabus. So together, we are going to learn, unlearn, and maybe even relearn why Oprah remains the queen of talk and the queen of the interview. We are all folks eating at the table that Oprah Winfrey set. Yes, we are. Oprah Demick's is the brainchild of two academics, historians Kelly Carter-Jackson, who teaches at my alma mater, Wellesley College, and Leah Wright-Regeer, who is at Johns Hopkins University. Not only are Leah and Kelly both Black women historians, they're best friends who share the same birthday and they each have three children. It's getting into weird territory. And they are both fascinated with Oprah Winfrey and the effect she's had on American culture and society. In Oprahdemics, they break that down in a way that's full of laughter and warmth and insightful tidbits. Here's Kelly in the first episode explaining why they started this. Everyone quoted Oprah. Everyone watched her and let her be sort of this guidebook or roadmap for how we should navigate the world. All throughout, you know, the late 80s, all throughout the 90s, all throughout the early 2000s and 2010s, Oprah dominated talk show television. And she did something else, too. Here's co-host Leah Wright-Regeer. One of the reasons that, you know, we talk about a lot about original Oprah, like the first version, mm-hmm. Oprah 1.0, <laughs> you know, yeah. when her show first comes out. Part of the reason that it does so well is that she captures elements of the culture, right? In this case, Black culture, and puts it on on, on television, essentially for the world to see. Now, Kelly and I are not arguing that all of those displays of culture are, you know, great <laughs> or magnificent. Some of those things are, yes. you know, might be like, okay, wait, she she was supposed to Ooh. keep that in the family. Like, she wasn't supposed to talk about that. <laughs> but she really did talk about everything from interracial dating and stereotypes about Black women to tightening up shaky family finances to Black girl road trips in places where you don't see a lot of Black folks. The point <laughs> yes. is, she put it out there. Um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a really, um, I think, powerful way for the world to see. So now, rather than people kind of just, you know, wondering, okay, what does that mean? What it, now people have an afternoon insight into yeah. this aspect of Black culture in all of its different dimensions. And uh, fam, when they say people, by the way, Leah and Kelly mean white people because that has always been Oprah's core audience, even though she does have millions of Black followers. And I should point out that while the two professors are big Oprah admirers, they do not admire everything she does. One of their most requested and most critical episodes was devoted to Oprah's elevation of Mehmet Oz, who was at one point an esteemed cardiothoracic surgeon and who morphed into... Uh, something else entirely. It's so necessary to understand where Dr. Oz came from, how he and Oprah formed this relationship, and how that informs all the questions about how we should understand him now. 
In the beginning, Dr. Oz appeared on Oprah's early shows as this affable, buff physician in scrubs who explains how your body works in really user-friendly ways. Like, he could talk to you about your poop and you wouldn't squirm. You want to hear what the stool, the poop, sounds like when it hits the water. And that sounds crazy, but if it sounds like a bombardier, you know, plop, plop, plop. <laughs> That's not right, because it means you're constipated. It means this, the, the food is too hard by the time it comes out. It should hit the water like a diver from Acapulco hits the water. <laughs> so Oz was a real doctor with enough fans that his Oprah appearances got him his own show. But somewhere along the line, he veered off into what Kelly and Leah call snake oil territory by endorsing and profiting off of products that hadn't been fully vetted, like diet supplements. That one got him hauled before a Senate consumer protection panel. In 2015, some of his peers at his New York hospital sent a letter asking for him to be fired. And, follow up, this year he was removed from the Columbia Medical Center's directory. Kelly and Leah say that Oprah bears some responsibility for people like Dr. Oz and psychologist Phil McGraw, both of whom have become household names and tremendously wealthy because Oprah launched them. Leah talks about what the Oprah imprimatur has meant. When it comes to how do we deal with accountability, it does change their life even though they already have platforms of their own. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it puts them in a a playing field that is unrivaled by anyone except Oprah Winfrey herself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we both have to really wrestle with that reality, but also the, the, the truism, I think, that while Oprah can be responsible for what's on her show, she is not responsible for what these men do after they are on her show, right? Mm. Um. Oprahdemics just completed season one, so it's all online, and you can binge it if you want. I particularly like the episodes about Oprah taking her show here to L.A. to discuss the 1992 riots, and the one on the school she created for girls in South Africa. They both actually had some very controversial elements. That's Oprahdemics, The Study of the Queen of Talk, hosted by Kelly Carter-Jackson and Leah Wright-Regure, produced by Radiotopia. Nag, you don't. But you got some solid podcast suggestions, right? And that's our show. We want to hear from you. Drop us a line and tell us what you're listening to and why. We may share a few of your suggestions. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. You can follow us on IG and Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. I'm at Karen Bates. And sign up for our newsletter at newsletters.npr.org. This episode was edited by Leah Danella and Steve Drummond and produced by Jess Kung. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, Alyssa Jean Perry, Deba Modisham, and Taylor Jennings-Brown, who shared their great podcast suggestions earlier, and Kamari Devarajan, Christina Kala, Summer Tomad, Jean Demby, and our newest edition, co-host B.A. Parker. Welcome, Parker. You'll hear more from her very soon. Thanks for listening. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. See ya.